We are starting in 1 Samuel this week. So if you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Actually, I think you'll be maybe, quote unquote, delightfully surprised because 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles are probably going to get through a lot more quickly than you think. We're getting back into the mechanics of Scripture, in my estimation, where we took a lot of time with one of the smallest books in the Bible, Ruth, but there was so much in there, we had to spend the time on it. But now we're getting back into the normal, um, well, I want to say the, the average threat, it seems, of Israel's tenure during the time of the Old Testament, which is war, getting ransacked, ransacking others, losing, winning, all this kind of stuff. And eventually, we know at the end of the Old Testament, it looks like they've lost. And all of these unfulfilled dreams and hopes, all of unfulfilled prophecy and all of the, the uh, rituals and all of the law and all of the holy days, all of those seem to stop short of fulfilling anything at the Old Testament. So we're getting back into that stream again. So hopefully you, hopefully you enjoyed the respite we had in Ruth. We are still in the time of the judges as 1 Samuel rolls out. And what we're doing now is, like I mentioned last week, is we're preparing because Israel is now going to start moving toward the time of the United Kingdom under, um, under the monarchy of first Saul and then David and so on. And we'll, so that's where we're headed right now. So this whole book, uh, actually it's 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, really sets up for and discusses the monarchy. Which, by the way, you know, remember we talked about the t- period of the judges, right, which is a period of 40 years. And... Um, Nothing really good happened there. It was ups and downs, ups and downs. Well, because human nature is still human nature and God still has to deal with human nature um, as far as his plan goes, the paradigm doesn't shift. The monarchy is, is pretty much just as bad. Um, but you'll, you'll know, and we'll get to this as a, as a point in a little later on, probably next week because it's in First Samuel. I mentioned to you a while ago, those of you who are here, and I quoted from uh, chapter 8 in 1 Samuel about Israel gets to the point where they're clamoring for a king. And God says to Samuel, who we're going to introduce ourselves here with today, um, you know, they're not against you, they're against me. So tell them, yeah, okay, you can have a king, but tell them this is what a king is going to do. And I read you from that, and we'll read it again. But it's remarkable how every government in some form or another, even our government today, is doing exactly to us what God said a human king over you will do to you. Some of you, I think, were here when I read that. So we're going to talk about that. But we're setting up for the monarchy. But we're still in the time of the judges, and Samuel, in fact, is actually a judge himself. But there are special qualities about Samuel. So what I want to do is I want to introduce him to you a little bit more than probably, you probably already know this is what I'll I'll say, but um, when you think really about who he is or who he became and what his... his, uh, um, his setting apart was about. You'll better understand how these books roll out. So the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles map out the transition into the monarchy, and Samuel is involved through the very beginning of it, setting the stage for all of this. Note that First and Second Samuel were actually a single book, and we're going to probably treat them as a single book as we flow through the first, these first two books. I've got to see how that's going to roll out because I haven't really looked into 2 Samuel that much yet as far as teaching it goes. But they were actually two books, uh, I mean actually one book combined, and they were split. Remember the, when the Greek Septuagint came out? Which was, like, remember, yeah, it came out like last year, didn't it? Uh, <laughs> you've heard of the Greek Septuagint. And uh, the Greek Septuagint, when, it was, when the Hebrew was translated to Greek, they split this into two books. But the Hebrew Bible itself 
kept these two books as one book until about, I think, what is it, 15, 17 AD, I found out. So they were, they were one concept for a very long time. Why they were split, I didn't do the research into, but in fact, they are split today. But the concept is, is there as one. So um, let's, if you should be in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 1, I'm going to read to verse 20. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphanite, or Zuphite, Zuphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, the son of Eliu, the son of Tohu, the son, Tofu? <laughs> the son of Zup, <laughs> and an and, and Ephraimite. He had two wives, one was called Hannah, and the other Peniah, or Pen, Penina, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. So you see, no matter how much I really mess up the names, you see who the players are here. And it's interesting how all of a sudden it starts out again with a barren woman. Isn't that interesting? How God has used this. How many times has he used this? Barren woman. But Hannah had none. So the book starts off giving you a background of the family lineage, which is going to, of course, result in Samuel. So we're getting to that point. Continuing in verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord, Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Now, remember, the temple hasn't been built yet. That's later on. We're going to talk about that when we get into the other books that are, are, are here, when we get into the monarchy. And, of course, Solomon builds the first temple. Um, so, the, remember we talked about the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant? And this was in an area called Shiloh. So, it wasn't among the camps. It was in a central place where they acted as if it were a temple. Matter of fact, they did call it a temple in those days as well, too. Matter of fact, I think the King James, one of them calls it a temple the, um, in, in the text. Uh, I think the Amplified Version calls it a tent, so on and so forth. But, so, and we have to understand, this is a good point to understand this, because what we're going to find out later on next week is that the Philistines are still around, and they're going to go to war with Israel twice in this period. And one of the times they're going to actually steal the Ark of the Covenant, and not from Shiloh. Uh, we're going to talk more about Eli and his sons, but they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the camps, which was a no-no. Big, big time no-no. And it's captured. So, but right now, it's making it clear that the Ark of the Covenant is in the tabernacle, which is in Shiloh. Okay? Where, now see, this is so, the Lord Almighty, okay, sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, we talked about that, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, now remember these two characters. I should have gotten the translations of their names. I did not. Maybe I'll find that out. Anybody know what those translations are? I'll find out for next week because these two, are, these two guys are bad characters. Bad characters. They're not puny and uh, unhealthy like the other guys were. These, these guys were bad. Uh, so these were two sons of Eli, uh, and they were priests. Now remember, Eli was the high priest during that time, and the two sons under him were priests as well. Whenever the day... When, Let's see, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Can you imagine this poor woman? Now, you know, today you've probably heard of the case of uh, Phoebe Prince. Anybody hear of that name, Phoebe Prince? She was a young girl who came from Ireland to the United States. Did you hear about that? You're saying, yeah, she committed suicide because of internet bullying. Yeah, it was in Massachusetts, right? Yeah, and you've probably heard of that now. There's a lot of cyber bullying going on. Well, it's very real. I mean, why people commit suicide? I mean, I was teased when I was a kid. You can probably imagine how much I was teased when I was a kid. I'm still teased, but that's another story. Just <laughs> the friends looking at me. What? 
You mean, has anybody ever stopped teasing you? No, they haven't, but I'm used to it. And I've never committed suicide. Never even, because I'm here. <laughs> but I never even actually thought of it. Maybe it was because, when, <laughs> maybe it was because when I was young, we didn't have the internet. That must be it. The internet's a killer. We need net neutrality. Okay. Al Gore, that's right. We need, he invented it. He's a killer. That's what he said. So speaking about Al Gore. When he said that he invented the internet, which is, uh, you know, when he was running for, before he was running for president around that time, there was a photo op. And these, I mean, I, I won't say him personally, but these morons around him didn't even realize. He says he invented the internet, and there was a photo op where he's actually helping to, quote unquote, wire a school for, for network connectivity. And they show him in this photo op with a hard hat and two guys, obviously electricians with their hard hat, and they have a, a, three spools of wire. And they're running this wire. And the, the photo op is now that they're you know, going to set up the school or hook it up for internet access. But the three spools of wire are full, like, you know, 10-gauge electrical copper wire that you use for wiring, you know, uh, you know the three phases coming into a building. Uh, it wasn't Cat5 Ethernet. Huh? What? Oh, you didn't say anything? Yeah. So, you know, but photo op's a photo op. So let's get back to suicide things. Anyway. <laughs> But so Hannah was being, was being um, pretty soundly trounced by probably, you know, his Al-Qaeda's other wife, right? And although she didn't commit suicide, she was very distraught. And that's the beginning of how we are here. Verse 7. This went on year after year. Year after year, she kept on getting pushed and poked. And, and God still had not chosen yet to open her womb, even though her husband was caring for her favorably and so forth. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, they would go there, right? To uh, uh, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than, your ten, son than, than ten sons? Now, that's pretty selfish on his part, I think, too. No, it's not, it has nothing to do with him. Why it says this in Scripture, I think it's just setting up personalities again. Not that it matters so much here, but if you think about like if, if my wife could not have children and she was all sad about it and, and then maybe her sister would provoke her, it would be the same kind of thing. She'd be all broken hearted about it and I'd be saying, hey, come on, cheer up. You got me. <laughs> Someone would be committing suicide and it'd probably be her. <laughs> cheer up. <laughs> Ain't I worth more to you than 10 sons? I'd be, I'd be waking up in the hospital after that. <laughs> so chapter 1 and verse 9. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the high priest at the time, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. So you see, they did call it a temple, even though it was not a temple. It was, remember I told you when we described it? It says tent, yeah, okay. Yes, the tabernacle tent. So you know what it was. It was the temple, yeah, but that's okay. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to, you, to the Lord for all the days of his life. Oh, now we're getting into something we talked about before. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Remember Samson? Mm -hmm. Remember... Remember we also talked about Paul having probably taken the Nazarite vow because we talked of him having, having uh, you know, uh, let, shaved his head at one point after disavowing him of that vow, although it, Scripture never mentioned it. Um, 
the key, the key here and with uh, Samson was the fact that we know that the Nazarite vow was something by, we, we read how it all laid out in scripture, something you could enter into. Right. You could enter into as an adult, as someone who could make a decision, say, yes, I will do this. And we also know that for many, it was a, only a period of time. You didn't become a Nazarite and stay one until you, you, your death. But in this instance, with Samuel and also Samson, what was the difference? The difference is their mothers had dedicated them before birth. For whatever, for whatever purposes that means in deeply in Scripture, and I don't really know all the purposes, like I said last time, there is the possibility, even though the actual vow says it's something you enter into between you and God for a time, um, you can also be dedicated from birth where you have no say in it. So we see a very special dedication here, very special dedication. Uh, Isaiah, sorry, Isaiah, 1 Samuel, chapter 1 and verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Can you imagine the deep distress of her? Eli thought that she was drunk <laughs> and said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Can you imagine that being so distraught? He probably would have gotten slapped if he wasn't the high priest still. Uh, get rid of your wine. No, not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the May the God of Israel grant you what you have asked him. So Eli understood after the explanation, and he's a, he's a learned man. He's a high priest. He's also you know, someone who can judge things as well. Um, he's not necessarily a bad guy. He's actually a pretty good, a good priest. He's a good man of God, but his problem were his sons, and we'll get into that in a minute, which also became his problem too. Um, but that was where his downfall was. He regarded his sons more than he regarded the Lord, and these guys were evil. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Verse 18, she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Earlier the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah lay with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So Hannah bears Samuel and rejoices. This is chapter two now, verses one through 10. And although we will not review here, Hannah's prayer is a good template for a prayer. If you should read this on your own in chapter 2, it pretty much takes up almost the whole chapter, or a good portion of it anyway. Um, it's a prayer. If you want to understand how to praise God and acknowledge His power, His authority, and His mastery over all things, look at that prayer that Hannah prays as a template. And you'll be amazed at how, how deeply you will see her understanding and her giving God glory in that way. I mean, we give God glory for many things. And sometimes, I know I do it, we look to the Psalms or we look to Jesus' template in prayer, for prayer. And we also can look to these kind of prayers as well. To, to, sometimes I just have to pray the prayer itself because I can't express what I'm thinking in, in my own terms. So I just let the Holy Spirit pray through me through these prayers, I guess is what I'm saying. But it's a good template to understand um, how, to, how, to, how to praise Him and how to be absolutely sure about His authority, power, and mastery over all things. And having and executing and executing a detailed plan through the ages, which is all focused at the end of the day on his saints, which are us. Of course, Israel for their promises. But at the end of the day, don't forget, all of the things he's weaving here is to end up for what? For the, not only the salvation of Israel or, or, or as becoming to know her Messiah, but to bring us Gentiles in. Remember, this is all a thread going to point into one event, 
the birth and death of Jesus Christ. That's what all Scripture is dedicated to. And, and, and our stature because of it and, and God's overarching plan. Just my point of view, but read it and see if, if you don't agree. So Samuel is now dedicated to the Lord's service and spends his life ministering in this quote-unquote temple, in the tabernacle. He never really leaves this place now. And he grew in the presence of the Lord. And that says that in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 21. Samuel was the last judge of Israel because he is actually the one who we'll see later on who anoints both Saul and David as king. So he will be the transition point between the period of the judges where Israel had no king at all to the, to the, to the, uh, the monarchy, which is where we're going, like I said before. Um, biblical history bears him out as a leader of stature in, in, in terms of, if you look at both Abraham as the patriarch and Moses as the lawgiver and the warrior and this, you know, bringing Israel out of Egypt. When you, when you read more about Samuel, we're going to discover more about him because he's a priest and a prophet, a man of very high stature and, and, and also anoints the kings of Israel. You're going to see that he is, is as, as high a profile a character as these two other men were. Make no mistake about it. This man is a very prominent man in Scripture. And you don't really hear a lot about him. You hear a lot about the others from the Jewish perspective and from our own perspective. And then from the Christian perspective, you hear mostly about the apostles and so forth. But I've got to make sure you understand that Samuel is no minor character at all in, in the course of Scripture. He's, he's now an operative in, in this major fulcrum of change, this crux of change from, from the judges, which is ramping down into this last, not last war, but this war with the Philistines and, and all of the, 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 the problems with that to now the problems of a different sort, but into a monarchy. And then, of course, you know, later on the, the kingdom splits and then they get taken captive and... And we, that, that's when you get into the later. But, that's, but he's, he's really at the fulcrum point of, of history here in, in Israel, at one of the fulcrum points anyway. He was also the first great prophet to Israel, and although not of the tribe of Levi, was specifically called to be a priest. Now, Eli, we know, is the high priest at this time. And his sons under him are also called priests, and they are. But Eli is a direct descendant of not too far away from Aaron, which was the first, you know, the priesthood. So you'll see that Samuel is not really in line for this, but he really becomes a priest as well. Samuel differed in his leadership as one of the judges of Israel in, the, in that his influence did not stand on military exploits, diplomatic skill, or political shrewdness. Remember we talked about Samson, we talked about the others, and uh, we, we didn't talk about all of the judges either. Remember we just took about three of them, right? The three most prominent ones that most people know. And they relied on, on military conquest or strategy, political shrewdness, and so forth and so on. Um, but in, but Eli, uh, sorry, Samuel didn't do that. He relied on his personal integrity and the unceasing loyalty to God is what gave him what he needed to do to be this fulcrum. You know, I believe personally, because it didn't roll out this way, so it's just my opinion, but any of these judges really was supposed to be like Samuel wound up being. Um, you know, of course, also we know that God, God was to be king over Israel and they rejected him. So that's why we had Saul and David. I mean, history would, of course, be very vastly different if it didn't roll out the way it did. But if you look at the intent... I think if these judges, when it, if it got to that, when it got to that point, if any one of them was an upstanding one like Samuel, it probably would have ended the time of the judges and maybe gone into the monarchy. Just my opinion. Because if you look at the way it rolls out, these people were pretty nasty. They were pretty wrong. They were pretty bad, all of them. And it's just like most humans are. But Samuel is very different. Samuel is very different. But he's also given the position of a priest as well. 
as the first great prophet of Israel, he's one of the first of the great prophets now, right? He established what, what, what is termed, and I've looked this up a number of places, and it's called the school or the schools of the prophets. And I looked it up, and I have the references in here. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 2 and chapter 4, it talks about Samuel really being the, uh, the, the prophet's prophet. He actually starts instructing others how to be prophets and a way of, of prophesying, if you will. It, it's kind of mixed here and there, but it is prominent to understand that he was sort of a teacher. Like I've talked about Daniel in this class. What happened to Daniel after, uh, after Israel went back and the whole thing with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and, and, and Persia was all done? What ha happened to him? The scripture doesn't tell us. But I know what's, what history says about him. It's in my notes, by the way, in my book of Daniel studies, so if you want to go there. But he actually moved to a city called Ekbatana, which is still exists today in, in Iran, but was then Persia, up by the Caspian Sea. And he lived to a ripe old age. And he kept on teaching to those pagans, who those people were Zoroastrian, the word of God. And who were the Magi? They were, they were Zoroastrian. They were Persian. And they came from that area. It took them two years to travel to see the birth of Messiah. Jesus was about two years old when they found him. But they traveled. And how do you think they knew of the signs that would prophesy Messiah had come? Daniel must have taught and taught and taught and taught. So here's the same thing. What Scripture doesn't really call out as a stark reference to somebody shows their character, shows really what God did with them. And I believe that Samuel was as prominent in forming what the prophets were after him as Daniel was in teaching the Gentiles, the, 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 those people who would listen to him above and beyond the Jews, right? Because he, he spent the rest of his life in Persia. He never went back to Israel. He spent the rest of his life there. That's all I'm saying. So you, this, is, this is just history, just to let you know. This, this man was a very prominent man. After anointing both Saul and David as the first two kings of Israel, Samuel gradually relinquishes his position of authority as a judge of Israel and turns it over to the monarchy. And then we'll get into that as well. So now let's go to Second Samuel, uh, for, sorry, First Samuel, chapter two, verse eleven. So we've covered now uh, pretty much chapter one and part of chapter two. First Samuel, chapter two, and verse eleven. Samuel was under Eli's uh, tutelage and was being groomed for priestly duties at this point. There was a problem, however. Eli did not raise his sons properly, as I just told you. Um, before the Lord and allowed them to remain as servants in the priesthood, although they were corrupt. And these guys were very corrupt. For example, they took for themselves all the prime cuts of meat from the sacrifice. And you'll read in chapter 2, I'm not going to say, read it here, but how they, they snookered people out of the prime cuts of their sacrifice. And people would actually get mad, the, the people bringing the sacrifices, and they would rebuke them for getting angry at them. It was pretty nasty. These guys were bad. And they also committed adultery with women who served at the sanctuary entrance as well. These guys were not pretty, and it's going to wind up in a horrible uh, downfall for Eli and his family uh, that will last for the, for the rest of the time. So God, it, it, we're, we're breaking in here. God is now going to deal with this issue through Eli's charge of Samuel, and guess who he's going to use to do this? Samuel. Isn't that interesting? When we get it, you probably know this because obviously you, none of you here are, are really newbies to Scripture, so you'll know that the kings, you know, David and so forth, had their um, uh, counterparts, their prophets, who kept them, tried to keep them in line and would tell them things. Well, here Samuel is going to be, this little boy is going to be used by God. But first, he has to get trained up in understanding who God is. And, and, and that's what we're going to see here. So, verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 11. 
Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. So, as I just said, now he's totally owned, lock, stock, and barrel into this, by the service to that temple, that tabernacle. And, and Eli was his trainer, was his caretaker at this point. But it says right after that, in verse 12, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now let's skip down to verse 22 in, uh, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Yeah. Elkanah was the father of Samuel. Eli is the high priest. Oh, yeah. Okay. Elkanah. Okay. Yeah. And so what we're seeing here is that Elkanah now is leaving Samuel there, and Eli is now going to be his caretaker. Yeah. So, verse 22. Now Eli was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel, though, so he knew it. This is not secret to him, he knew what was going on and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not, good, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. Um, now you see, let's just look at this for a second. It seems to me because he's made it a note here a couple of times about this rumor or these problems spreading among the people. It sounds like he's got a pride problem. It sounds like he's not directly chiding them, although he is, but he's more concerned with what the people think about the priesthood and, and the bad mark that these kids are leaving on it. So you can see this man's point of view is wrong. As a father, as a man of his house, over his children, he's got the wrong attitude. It's as if my children were, doing, were sinning and I kept on telling him, please don't sin, what do the neighbors think? It's please don't sin because I don't want you to sin against God and be, and, and be ineffective for him. And, and, and then maybe, maybe if I don't correct you, or at least try my best, then my effectiveness to God will be altered in some way and he'll take care of that. You see, you see the difference in the point of view? Okay. So he says in verse 25, If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke and probably because... His father never really was a good, solid dad to them. He did his priestly duties, and he was a good priest. He was a good man as far as serving the Lord. But how best for a man to serve the Lord, if he's got children, than to bring his, the children up in the way that they should go? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, as you read in the book of Joshua. So there's a major character flaw here. And see now, you know, just like with Naomi... I'm not casting dispersions on anybody. I'm just telling you, he was a good priest, but you see by what he did, he was not for the Lord in all the ways he should be. And now God is going to take care of this, using one of the most unlikely people to do this. We're moving on here. Uh, his sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. So now it also says here, very strongly inferred, that God had already determined what was going to happen to these guys. You just read it. So it seems to me he hardened their hearts from the get-go. But would it all have happened if they were raised properly anyway? Well, again, history is what it is, and we don't know God's heart, what he would have done, but we know the intent, and we, we see the result, and so exactly right. I don't believe that. Um, verse 26, And the boy Samuel continued to grow. See, all of this is happening around Samuel, and it seems to me by what, how it's put here, it's not affecting him. See, he's not really being brought up. He's being brought up under the tutelage of Eli. But where Eli failed as a father to his sons, do you think he would actually do any better with Samuel? I doubt it. 
But Samuel is, is supposedly, looks like anyway, being unaffected by this because Samuel has been dedicated from before birth to God and it's God who's raising him, not Eli, even though Eli is responsible for him. Plus, his mother, we, we skipped over that part, but his mother would also come to Shiloh and visit and make him little robes and little things too. So she was, I'm sure, telling him the proper things about God too. Because if you look at her prayer, like I said, and see Hannah's character, she is very much a, a, a very distinctive woman of God and very grateful for this son. So I believe that was all part and parcel of it. So the boy continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and your father's house would minister before me. This is talking about Eli. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. It's sort of like, I, re I repent of that. I relent of that. Just like when God said he repented or relented of making man, and then he repented and relented of having Israel be his nation. So it's the same kind of thing here. He says, I told you that I would keep you in the line of the priesthood forever. He says, but now be it far from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your family line. You see, there it is. He's going to cut off the family line right there. And you will see the stress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, in your family line there will never be an old man. Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears and to grieve your heart and all your descendants will die and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. So what he's saying is, he is so angry that he says, if I spare you, it's only so that you'll be around to view the awful things that I'm going to be doing to your family line. It's pretty bad. It's like sort of saying, before you die, I'm going to let you see one thing, the torture of your family. I mean, I don't want to put it as harshly as that, but you see God's heart here. Do not play with God. Don't play with Him. You know, we are under grace here. And for us, punishment is more of... Um, of uh, correction, okay? This is not, this is correction to keep things right as history rolls out, but you can see this is strict punishment. There's a difference. And this kind of judgment is going to come upon this earth. You see the wrath of God, don't play with it. Yes, Felicia. Was that considered a curse? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> this, right here, he says, this is a curse, and there is no, there's, there's going to happen, and you're going to see it's going to roll out. So God, if God says something happens, bad and it's going to happen and it happens it's a curse you can't do anything about it just like a blessing if god says i will bless you and your descendants can you do anything about that what can man do to you when god is on your side so a curse and a blessing right the two of them together they're the same thing but they're opposite they're from god and they're assured it's like a miracle and demonic activity what's the difference they both function pretty much the same way but one's from God and is good, and the other's from demons and Satan and so forth. And they're, they're, you know, they still use, like we've talked about, God and the angels are separated from being bound tightly to these four dimensions we call uh, space-time. We understand that, right? So therefore, they can manipulate matter and manipulate the laws of physics and are not bound by them. And so what we consider as a miracle by God can also be demonic play and we may think as I've said aliens or or other things that are happening but um, demonic activity can be looked upon as a miracle can it isn't the Antichrist going to be doing these things calling down fire from heaven would you say that that's a miracle if you thought he was Christ would you say it's not a miracle if you knew who he really was same thing with blessings and curses miracles and demonic activity it's the same thing it's just who's behind it 
Get my drift? Right. So hopefully that answers the question. So it is a curse. There's no question about it. In verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 34. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. Now that's a real curse. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. Now keep that in your mind. We always want to know God's heart. But what do I say in this class? We need to know his, not only his heart, but we study scripture to know his mind and his character. You see, you have to know all of them. And I've, I've talked to plenty of Christians, and you have too, where they're interested in God's heart because they love the love. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But just be in love with God for the love back, but not understanding his character, not understanding his mind and how he thinks, that is not wisdom. That is just not the picture at all. I mean, it's a part of the picture. It's not the complete picture. And you might as well not have all of God at that point. Because there are some Christians who I've talked about. I mean, I've talked about it. I've heard tell me that, you know, they're so, I'm paraphrasing here, but it seems that they're so in love with being in love with God, which is not a bad thing. Please understand what I'm saying. Please understand what I'm saying. But if all you and I are are in love with the love, we're missing the greater service to God and man through God. Through We're useless to Him. Because aren't we all going to be judged again? Right? We're not judged for our sins, but what are we going to be judged on? That's right. And how are you going to know what God wants you to do, and how He wants you to do it, and why He wants you to do it, if all you do is love Him, but you really don't understand how He thinks? Remember what I said last week, it is my conviction, my personal deep conviction, after study and, 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 and my personal relationship with God, that there are only two things you truly own in this planet. You came in with nothing, and you leave with nothing. The only things you have when you leave are what's stored up in heaven, which you don't have yet, right? Okay, so we agree we come in with nothing and we leave with just as much. However, the only things that you will really own here right now that you will bring with you, that you have it already stored up in heaven, that you didn't come in here with, but got and kept, are eternal life through Jesus Christ, right? And wisdom. Because what does God say about the knowledge of this world? It's foolishness, and it's going, going to die along with the world. But what you and I, if you know God's mind and His character, that will dictate how you think, and you start thinking like He thinks, and you change your, oh, worldview, and change that to the perception of how God views the world, would you say that you look at things differently than most people? Differently than maybe many Christians you know? Yeah, you will. You will. So this is why I underlined it in my notes here. My mind, my heart and mind, make no mistake about that. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in, everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a crust of bread and a plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. Now, chapter 3 and verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli... Now, remember, the curse has already been given. Eli now knows what's going to happen. And, and so, well, it's, it, he doesn't know yet. He's going to know what's going to happen. But it's already been determined what's going to happen. Eli is still over uh, Samuel, and so you see the setup. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. You know why? Because it was still the period of the judges. Remember we heard about that in the book of Judges at the beginning? In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. 
You saw everything that happened. The reason why God would raise judges, he's always raised them at the right time to, to save Israel and snatch them out of the claws of death from some invading army or from something going on. The judges would bring them back to the knowledge of God and to the worship of God. And as soon as that judge's tenure was over, over, they'd sink right back down. So the word of the Lord was rare, and it's saying it here. So we know it's still the time of the judges. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could hardly, that he could barely see, was laying down in his usual place. So all things are operating in the temple or in the tabernacle as they always were. But we now we know what's going to happen. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. What's the lamp of God, by the way? This is the menorah. This is the menorah. So this ain't no candle on the wall. This is the menorah. Okay. And Samuel was laying down in the temple, right, or the tent where the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Now remember, the Lord called Samuel here. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. Now see, he made a mistake here, didn't he? This young Samuel ran to Eli, thinking Eli called him. Now I think Pastor Nathan was talking about this in one of the services a couple weeks ago. Was it Joel or Nathan? One of them. Um, but Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son, Eli, said, I did not call you. Go back and lay down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The Lord, word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So I'm going to make a point here in a moment. But just keep that in mind. God is specifically, it says, is calling Samuel. right? But Samuel is thinking Eli's calling him because he doesn't quite understand God's voice yet. He's hearing his voice, but he doesn't quite understand. How about when you and I were called? How about those God are call, is calling now? They hear his voice, but they don't understand. There's more to this, but that's the key. That is the major key. So, and it says it right here in chapter, uh, verse 7. Verse 8, the Lord called Samuel a third time, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Now, Eli's probably getting a little annoyed. He's an old man. He wants to sleep, you know? Um, the Lord called Samuel, okay, and then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. Uh, so now long, uh, to me, personally, again, was my perception here, Eli knew God pretty well. How, how many times did it take before he realized that God was calling him? Three times? Maybe after the first one, okay, the second time, maybe, you know. So I, I don't know for sure, but I think that's what it shows me, that Eli was not as in tune, maybe because he was sleeping, who knows. But I just, just wanted to bring that to you as a possibility. Um, so then he finally realized it. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down, and if he calls you, you say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord, called, the Lord came and stood there, <laughs> calling at other times. Samuel, Samuel, <laughs> calling as at the other times. And then he says, the Lord came and stood there. Hmm, he's right there now. <laughs> I don't know what that means either. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And we're going we're gonna to probably wrap up here shortly here, but... Um, note here that we are observing that training is a key attribute in bringing ourselves and our children into, position, or into the position of hearing God's voice. It's training. You know how you want to learn music, you have to train your ear? You have to train yourself. I have to train myself to listen to the voice of God, to listen to Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. You've read in Scripture that still small voice? There are plenty of times that God just you know, makes it clear. Right? And even to people that aren't his. Let me give you an example. He makes it abundantly clear and unquestionable. He's talking to someone who wants something from them. Look at Paul. How was Paul called by Jesus? 
Was it a whisper? <laughs> How about Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar? You remember that Nebuchadnezzar wrote a chapter in the book of Daniel saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who he says he was. He said he, he believed that. He, he never did much with it after that. But God called him, and he was unmistakable. How about the last character I'll bring up here, Cyrus? You know who Cyrus was? Anybody? He was a king, but what did he do? That's right. Do you know how he knew he was supposed to do that? He was a Persian king. You know how he knew he was supposed to do that? Because 500 years before in Isaiah, his name was actually mentioned by name 500 years before. And someone told him that. And he read it. And he said, ooh, that must be God. And I'm going to do what he told me to do. And he did. So you see how God works? Now do you know the mind and heart of God? Do you also know how he speaks? Sometimes it's very softly. Sometimes he speaks with a big stick. Sometimes he speaks by blessing you where you know it's from God, like Hannah. And you praise him for it. Sometimes he speaks because you're being disciplined. I say you, I mean me. I'm no different. All right. So to wrap up, God desires a close and intimate relationship with each of us individually. And the only way we are going to get there is by training ourselves to understand his mind, his heart, and his character. Because then you'll understand how he speaks. And when he speaks, what he's saying. And why he's telling you what he wants you to know. And also, don't make the mistake of interpreting for others what God tells them. That's another training that you have to, I know I have to curtail myself on that, and I'm getting pretty good at it now. I just say, I don't know what God's telling you, but let me tell you what I think. <coughs> but, you have, but your relationship is his. Don't be a yenta in other people's businesses with God, right? Unless you see their sin, and of course you, you're supposed to do something about that. So that's where we'll wrap up today. We'll continue in verse, uh, chapter 3 next week. So I'd say this week when you get a chance, just look at chapter 2. Read that prayer that Hannah prays and thanks to God and see what she thinks of God. And uh, keep your ears open. Listen. Have a great week, everybody. <laughs>